This is going to be a special episode. You see, I truly believe that the HR department is ideally positioned to build trust in a company. I really do. But the first step for HR to be building trust in the organization is for HR to be trusted by the employees. There was a study from Crucial Learning in April of 2022. They, they surveyed 993 employees. And when they asked them, who do you turn to when you have a personal issue, even work-related issue that you need to resolve? Number one was the manager. Number two was to their colleagues. Number three was they tried to resolve it themselves. Number four was they reach out to another leader and then there are like, I don't know how many other layers. And at the end is when they would actually go to HR. More findings from that study. 75% of employees don't trust their HR leader or they don't trust that their HR leader cares about their needs. Only 9% of those surveyed felt that their HR leader would advocate for them. 37% felt that HR was more concerned about advocating for the organization than for them. And 47% don't feel safe confiding in or getting assistance from the HR leader. When I speak to human resources groups, one of the questions that comes up is, why do employees trust HR so little? The employees don't pay HR salaries. They don't hire HR people. They don't fire HR people. Management does. So that puts the HR managers right there between a rock and a hard place. On one hand, they know that they are there to help the employees. I mean, that's what they were trained to do. That's what's in their being. But at the same time, they must follow what management is asking them to do. You know, I found a uh, an interesting quote from a blog, a SHRM blog, the Society for Human Resource Managers. Uh, and I'm going to give you a direct quote. I'm too, this is from an HR manager uh, who went into HR about two years ago. So this is what uh, I think it's she, but she or he writes. I'm two years into a career in HR. My work experience includes managing people and training and development. I truly am struggling and considering leaving my HR director role as I'm constantly being reprimanded for looking out for the best interest of the employees. My manager feels that my role is to offer benefits, oversee recruitment and hiring, and keep us legally compliant in our processes. Is this typical in most companies? Am I missing something? That's the quote. So why does, why is it that management feels that their role, that the HR role is to keep the company legally compliant? And, and I have to tell you, that's my personal experience too. Asking senior HR leaders what their top priorities are, and one of their top priorities is to keep the company legally compliant. It's all about compliance. And it seems like management appears to care much less about trust and much more about compliance. And, and to be brutally honest, it's to keep the company from being, keep it safe from being sued by its own employees. The management, many managers see the role of HR as protecting the company from its employees. 
Let me say this again. Management believes that the role of HR is to protect the company from the employees, not to help the employees. But, you know, to be fair to management, there is a reason for that. I found a uh, survey study by the law firm of Norton, Rose, and Fulbright. It's a 2023, it's a pretty recent one, and it's called the 2023 Annual Litigation Trends Survey, Perspectives from Corporate Councils. So they talk to corporate councils, legal councils, and here are some of their findings. It's It's a much more elaborated report, but here are some of their findings. For every $1 billion in revenue, a company would spend $1.7 million on disputes. And we're talking employment-related disputes. 44% of the lawsuits, or 44% of the the participants, the legal counsels for different companies, expect the volume of lawsuits to increase in 2023. 44% expected to increase. Only 13% expected to decrease. So the rest must just expected to stay the same. So 44% expected to increase. 48% felt more exposed to employment and labor disputes than in 2022. Only 10% felt less exposed. One in two felt more exposed uh, to employment and labor disputes. Now, they, they also summarized, you know, from a legal Counsel's perspective, a company legal counsel, what are the top litigation topics? Number one, 65% employment and labor. 65% of litigation topics that a company deals with are related to employment and labor. It's 11% more than the next one. You would think that contracts would be the top one, but no, that only has 54%. 11% less than employment and labor. And just so that you know, for companies that make products, only 23% of the, the litigation topics are product liability. We have a culture of litigation. We are. And there are attempts. There, there is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Institute for Legal Reform that, that keeps making this point that we have a culture of litigation and what needs to change in our legal system, what legal reform we need to have. it. But but they've been talking about that for many, many years. We have a culture of litigation. Which leads me to what I'm going to share with you today. Because as soon as I thought about this, the first thing that came to mind is my first TEDx talk from 2023. TEDx Oaklawn, uh, 2023. Because that's that's really what he talks about, except it, it explained why. So what if I told you that this culture of litigation that we have today is the result of one event that happened one night, 50, now almost 54 years ago, 1969, December 2nd of 1969. What if I told you that we have a culture of litigation that goes back or there is the result of that one event that happened one night? Want to know more? By the way, this is exactly how I got the TEDx talk. Uh, I was one of the organizers of the TEDx, the first TEDx Plano in 2014. And somehow the organizers, the current organizers, or back in 2018, the organizers of TEDx Plano, um, 
we're reached by the new organizers of the TEDx Oaklawn, and they asked, do you have good speakers? And they gave them my name. Um, and at that time, I couldn't speak at a TEDx Plano because I was serving on the Plano Independent School District Board, so I was an elected official. They didn't want to give you know, the stage to an elected official. Anyway, so they gave my name, they called me and they said, why don't you apply? And I thought, you know, it's sure I can apply, but but I have many topics, many derivative topics, obviously of my main topic of trust. And, and I said, why don't we have a call and I'll tell you what my topics are and, and let's see what, what we can find that will interest you. So we end up on the call and, you know, I gave different topics, and at some point I asked that question. What if I told you that the culture of litigation we have today dates back or is the result of one event that happened one night in 1969, almost 50 years ago back then? So, obviously, he was intrigued. He wanted to hear more, and, and I, I told him I connected the dots for him, which is what I did in the TEDx talk. And as soon as I was done, he said, don't apply. You're in. You're going to give that talk. And so what I'm about to do, instead of taking you through the talk or, or repeating it, I'm actually going to give you the recording. I'm going to include the recording of that first, my first TEDx talk. And um, one thing to know is that there are slides that I'm using there. I just listened to the TED talk and realized that it can be delivered over this podcast episode without the slides. But just in case you do want to see them or you do want to see the performance, the link to this TED Talk, to the actual TED Talk, uh, is in the description of this podcast. Wherever you listen to the podcast, go to the description and open it. So without further ado, here's the TED Talk right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Last year, Christy Baumer drove her Beamer, that sounded so much better in my head, in a parking garage in Austin. And she climbed to the seventh floor and she found a parking spot. And as she squeezed her car into that parking spot, instead of pressing the brake, she hit the accelerator. And her 300 horsepower BMW flew through the cables and down to the street. She survived it which should probably make this a good commercial for BMW. But she sued the operators of the garage structure for a million dollars. In September of 92, Stella Liebeck stopped at a drive-through window for a McDonald's to order her coffee. She got her coffee, she put it between her legs, she opened the lid to put sugar and milk, 
and that's when she spilled it on herself, suffering third-degree burns. She sued McDonald's for $3 million. But my personal favorite, in May 5th of 2005, Roy Pearson went to the local dry cleaner to pick up his pants. As it turns out, the dry cleaner lost his pants. That's Pearson's pants. The pants were part of a suit that was worth $1,000 new. So Pearson sued them for 54, not $54,000, $54 million. In fact, he started by suing for $67 million, which he reduced to $54 million. He lost that case, but during that case, the dry cleaner offered him $3,000 to settle it. Remember, the suit only cost $1,000. He declined. So he offered $4,600. He still declined. Then the dry cleaner offered $12,000 to settle that lawsuit, and Pearson still declined. Why would the dry cleaner offer $12,000 to settle the suit over a $1,000 suit? Because it cost him $83,000 to win this case and get nothing. The first step in solving any problem is recognizing there is one. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in a culture of litigation. The US ranks 24th in reading, 24th in science, 38th in math, 13th in problem solving. Of all the things that we could lead the world in, we lead the world in the percentage of our GDP that we spend on civil litigation. The US spends 1.7% of our GDP on civil litigation. The next country, Canada, spends 1.2, UK 1%. The European Union average is 0.63% and Japan spends 0.3%. It gets even worse when you look at dollars because we spend as much as Canada, the UK, the entire European Union, and Japan spend on civil litigation combined twice. We spend $956 per person per year on civil litigation. And just to put this number in perspective, there are 28 countries in this world that don't make $956 per person in GDP. But why does it matter? See, last year, at the beginning of the school year, the chief diversity officer in Clark University in Massachusetts told the freshmen in their orientation meeting that this school will not tolerate microaggressions. When asked, what do you mean by microaggressions? She said, for example, you cannot use the phrase, you guys, because obviously that's highly offensive to women. They also coined the terms trigger warnings, and safe spaces. Ladies and gentlemen, we are raising a generation that is not ready to face life. And why? Because our schools are afraid of getting sued. Next time you walk into a doctor's office or a hospital, you should know that 79% of doctors say that they order tests they don't need just to avoid lawsuits. 45% of US hospitals don't have enough ER doctors because they are afraid of lawsuits. And as you go to get employed somewhere, remember that there are equal opportunity employment laws that make it so hard for you to fire a substandard, a bad employee, if that employee is a woman, old, or a member of a minority group.
And they make it so hard to fire them that employers don't want to hire them. But don't worry, that's not what they're going to tell you. They will tell you that we decided to go in a different route with this position because they're afraid of getting sued. So we do live in a culture of, of uh, litigation. What if I could show you that this culture of, of litigation starts with an event that happened one evening almost 50 years ago? It is based on research that I've conducted using credible sources, such as the Census Bureau, World Bank, the American Bar Association, and the CIA. Okay, mostly credible sources. <laughs> First of all, could we have too many lawyers? And I know there is a lawyer joke in here, I just don't have it. <laughs> well, as it turns out, 80% of the world lawyers live here in the US. That's one in 244 people. One in 13 in Washington, DC. In fact, 41% of our members of Congress hold a law degree. To understand why we have so many lawyers, I started tracking the growth in the number of lawyers compared to the growth in general population. The graph behind me will show you that between 1900 and 1970, the growth in the number of lawyers pretty much tracked the growth in general population. In fact, for every 1% growth in general population, the number of lawyers grew 1.1%. But something happened, and in 1970, that growth in the number of lawyers surged. And starting in 1970, for every 1% growth in general population, the number of lawyers grew 7%. So we seem, it seems like we have too many lawyers. But what happened in 1970, or before 1970? For that kind of surge to happen in 1970, something must have happened in the 60s. Well, the 60s were crazy times. JFK was elected and then assassinated. His brother Robert was assassinated, and so did Dr. Martin Luther King. We went through the ecology revolution, the feminist revolution, black power revolution, human rights revolution, sex revolution, and drug revolution. On July of 1969, we put a man on the moon, and in August, we had Woodstock. <laughs> we didn't trust the government, and we were fighting a war that we didn't want. And what made it worse was that during the Korean War, only three million households here in the US had a TV. But by 1969, more than 60 million US households were watching the Vietnam War on TV. That year, 1968, reached the peak of our involvement in Vietnam. We had 536,000 soldiers in Vietnam. 300,000 were drafted that year. But the worst part was the 16,899 who came home in a casket covered with the American flag. So if you were a draft age man, you did not know that the next year those numbers are going to go down. In fact, you had absolutely no reason to believe that those numbers are not going up. And so you experienced a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And if you don't know what it feels like, uncertainty, ask yourselves, how do you like the uncertainty of the weather? How about financial uncertainty? How about the uncertainty of serving in a war? And even worse than that, 
coming home in a box covered with the American flag. Most countries have volunteer military. 34 countries in the world actually have a military of, that's drafted. Israel is one of them, that's me, serving in the Israeli Defense Forces 35th Airborne Paratroopers Brigade. I knew that my service was coming, and I enlisted when I was 17 and a half. I joined the military one month after the war in Lebanon in 1982 started. I know the fear that people would feel before going to war. But what made it worse here was the uncertainty. You see, you did not know if you were going to serve in Vietnam. So I want to take you to the evening of December 1st, 1969. At that point, somebody was drawing blue capsules out of a big drum, corresponding to dates, birth dates, and the numbers one through 366. The chart is what you see on the right. The columns are the months, the rows are the dates. Find your birthday. Find your lottery number. The first number to be drawn was September 14th. If you were unlucky enough to be born on September 14th, you were the first to go to Vietnam. What was your number? What we found in the research was that every man who had a draft number lower than, let's say, 200, remembers this night as if it happened yesterday. Those with higher numbers or those who enlisted may not remember it. And we did an experiment. A friend of mine asked a friend of his, just sent him a text. What was your lottery number? Nothing else, no content, no what lottery are you talking about? Yet his friend knew exactly what we were asking, and he replied within less than a minute with the number 27. And then he said, everybody knows their lottery number. It was actually a pretty scary time. We watched that war on TV, and we were all worried. So the event that changed our culture is the draft lottery of December 1st, 1969. Now, don't get me wrong, the 60s led to this. There are a lot of things that happened in the 60s that led to this, but that one event did change our culture. It created fear, uncertainty, and doubt. But we still have one box missing. You see, you could have legally avoided the draft if you were a true conscientious objector, if you had a real medical or psychological condition that prevented you from serving, if you were a homosexual or a woman, neither of which were drafted, if you had an essential civilian job or simply had children, those were all valid legal reasons not to serve. Then, of course, came the illegal reasons. You could have faked documents, lied, cheated, fled to Canada, but that was illegal. Then, of course, you could have simply been eligible. You are at the right age with absolutely no condition that prevents you from serving in Vietnam. In this case, my friends, you are going to Vietnam unless you had a high lottery number. Because in the December 1st, 1969 draft, they only reached number 195. You could have enlisted. 75% of our soldiers in Vietnam were volunteers. And the only deferment that still existed in December of 1969 was the college deferment. It was a classification of 2S, that's a real document, 
And with that, if you registered for college, you could avoid being drafted until the age of 35. And to put it in perspective, the war was over by 1973, so effectively, you will not serve. So now we have the college deferment, but how does that link to having too many lawyers? So I did more research, and here's what I found. I looked at the number of men enrolling into law schools. Between 1947 and 1968, between 18,000 and 22,000 enrolled into law schools. The numbers actually peaked at 23,000, but then declined to 22,000 by 1969. The number of women that enrolled into law schools, by 1965 was the first year that more than 8,000 women enrolled in law schools nationwide. But then came the draft. And the number of men enrolling into law schools spiked. And we went from 22,000 to 32,000 in the span of two years, 45%. We never reached that number of men in the red line enrolling into law school until today. We are still not there. And law schools, there were 110 law schools in 1947, 200 today. The single one-year jump, biggest jump, 1969. And in order to keep the capacity filled, they started reducing admission requirements. And more women started applying, just so that law schools can keep themselves at full capacity capable of delivering 45,000 new lawyers every year. And that caused a surge in the growth in the number of lawyers, which gave us a culture of litigation. Thank you. And that was the TED Talk. A few things, a few clarifications. During the TED Talk, I talked about the percentage of GDP that is being spent on civil litigation. And at that time, the research that I had showed 1.7% of our GDP was spent on civil litigation, 1.66%, which accounted for $309 billion at, at that time. Well, as it turns out, I didn't have access to newer study that was done just about the same time, maybe a little after my, my TED Talk, but that study was released by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Institute for Legal Reform. I mentioned it before. Uh, that study indicates that nationwide, the cost of litigation already hit $429 billion, from up from 309, which was the number I had, to 429, representing 2.3% of the U.S. GDP. 2.3% of the U.S. GDP. Now, I know I took you through this process to this one event that happened one night on December 2nd, 1969, and that was the draft lottery, the first draft lottery. But that's not the only reason. There are several other reasons. One of them is uh, there is a new trend that, that started back then called, well, I really call it lawsuit-backed litigation. Uh, or lawsuit, I'm sorry, lawsuit-backed security. Do you remember uh, the 2008 market crash uh, based because of the mortgage-backed securities or the, the fallout from mortgage-backed securities and the practices around it? Well, so I made this name, lawsuit-backed securities. And uh, 
I talked about that in the book that I co-authored with Lori Van. Lori Van is a uh, teen uh, psychologist. Uh, she's really focused on uh, non-suicidal uh, self-injuries. But um, and, and the book is called Cause of Death, Political Correctness, How PC Kills Innovation, Creativity, Productivity, and Children. And children was mostly her part because she really knows a lot about that. That book came out in 2018. And you're going to find a little, a few other reasons. But those those reasons really uh, don't relate so much to the topic I started with. And that is why is HR focused on protecting the company from, from litigation? By the way, another comment that I made uh, that I already got some uh, backfire from is that I asked the question, do we have too many lawyers? And and I found research that says that 80% of the world world's lawyers are here in the U.S. Do we have too many lawyers? Uh, so this is not something against lawyers. I have nothing against lawyers. In fact, I do have my own law degree, uh, even though I got that back in Israel. This is the end of this episode. Um, let me talk about the next episode because I'm, I'm really excited about what, what I'm starting to do, something that I have embarked on. I have embarked on a new study, and the study focuses on the premium on trust or trust premium, specifically in the context of salespeople. In other words, I'm, I'm going to answer the, the question, how much does a salesperson trustworthiness affect their ability to close a deal or even charge a higher price, a premium. At the same time, I'm really answering the question, how much does their lack of trustworthiness cost them? Now, what I'm finding is that it's different for different sales roles and different industries. So it's different for a used or new car salesperson. We tend to think of used car salesperson as the lowest form of of. I don't know, humanity, but, but you know, I, there is a used car salesman. If you ever need to buy a BMW that I will immediately refer you to, because whenever I need to buy a BMW used or new, that's who I go to. His name, by the way, is Douglas Robbins. So here, a shout out, but, uh, it's different. It's different for different sales roles in different industries. It's different in B2B versus B2C. It's different in uh, the financial term. Uh, th there are different factors, and I'm not going to talk about it now. Uh, and the reason it's different is because trust is relative. This takes me back to trust is relative. There is no one formula. There is no one set of percentages. And, and what I'm going to do is assess the premiums in different industries, the factors that cause someone to trust a salesperson in those industries over another salesperson. And the goal of this is not only to have the numbers for different industries, but actually to have an instrument that would allow me to assess the trustworthiness of any salesperson and, and therefore help sales leaders or, or salespeople to improve their trustworthiness, and as a result, their probability of they close the deal and uh, their the, even the premium that they get. Th this was initially I was thinking about doing it in this episode, but I'm still in the pilot study, and and I think it's going to take me a week, maybe even two, and and after the next episode, we're taking a week break because we're going to have 12 episodes in this season, like any other season. Um, 
it's just taking me a little longer, so I'm not ready. I wasn't ready to talk about this today, so I gave you what I did uh, today. So this is coming either next episode or the first episode of season 11. And until then, may trust be with you. This is The Trust Show. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.